Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There was some shocking news from Peru this week with the news that Alan Garcia, a two-term president of Peru, died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound on Wednesday. Garcia was under investigation as part of a major corruption probe. The police were stationed at his door, ready to arrest him when he pulled the trigger. Allegations include taking bribes from the Odebrecht Construction Company in connection with a rail contract. Mr. Garcia had previously been told not to leave the country. He had always expressed his innocence and just this week tweeted, I never asked for money or sold public works. The BBC's Bola Masuro spoke with Peruvian journalist Martin Reipel shortly after the news broke. During the morning, when the police came to his place to detain him, actually no one was expecting that at all. Actually, a shock for everyone here in Peru. And he was not a popular former president. A lot of people in my country is not only shocked, but sad. There were, according to the Ministry of Health, 30 doctors working there trying to save his life, but it was impossible. I understand the current president has issued a statement about this tragedy. Yeah, Martin Vizcarra, our president right now, sent his condolences to Alan Garcia's family. He also offered the family to help them with the organization of the funeral as Remember Alan Garcia, as he's a former president, he deserved that. But the family decided not to accept this kind of state honors. Martin, as you say, Alan Garcia was a president, in fact, two-time president, wasn't he? He served two different terms, not consecutively. And yet he's also a man who, like a few other former presidents of Peru, was under investigation for allegations concerning this Odebrecht company that has ensnared a lot of people in the whole scandal. Can you tell us more about the allegations, uh, what had been said about him and his alleged involvement, please? So you said it correctly. Alan Garcia was president of Peru twice, first between 1985 and 1990, and the second one between 2006 and 2011. Both administrations ended with corruption accusations. During Alberto Fujimori's regime, I mean during the 90s, Garcia fled the country and he returned only when he no longer could be charged for corruption. What happened today, however, is related to his second period. So what happened here? You mentioned the word Oliver, which is something you can find in every single media, every single day here in Peru. The Oliver case uh, across whole Latin America has involved in corruption scandals many of the most prominent political leaders. Peru is perhaps the country in which this situation is more evident. All of our living former presidents are involved to some extent in corruption scandals related to Odebrecht. In the particular case of Alan Garcia, the accusation is that he received bribes to help Odebrecht win two major projects, Lima's underground and the interoceanic highway that connects Peru and Brazil. Martin, what have supporters of the former president of Mr. Garcia, what have they been saying in the wake of him taking his own life? Uh, Well, they said that this was like the end of a political persecution against Alan Garcia. They were claiming that uh, since the investigations started, they said that former president Garcia took this decision to keep his honour. 
Garcia was a polarizing politician. So actually, he has been one of the less popular political leaders of the last years. Although he was not in a trial yet, public opinion had already condemned him, according to a recent service. That was the BBC's Bola Masuro. She spoke with Peruvian journalist Martin Reipel shortly after the news broke that Alan Garcia had died on Wednesday. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. A group of Chicago women has been meeting weekly to watch, rate, and discuss short films from around the world. They gather in a large, echo-filled concrete room. It doesn't make for the best interview recording atmosphere, but that's what's available. Now, months later, they've curated their own film festival, and it's being shown in Chicago tomorrow night. It's all part of Women's View, a program that, for the first time, has enlisted female detainees at the Cook County Jail as their professional film jurors. Linda Paul brings us the story. My recording equipment's made it through security, and now I'm being ushered through a maze of cinder block halls. It's not every day you find yourself wandering through the back halls of Cook County Jail, hunting for where international films are about to be screened. Thomas. Can you take them down to 1L? The room we're looking for, the one that'll serve as a movie venue, turns out to be a vacant tier of Division 5. A guard in a control booth faces into a day room surrounded by empty cells. A bunch of women are seated at tables arranged, I'm told, according to the rules of feng shui, the ancient Chinese art of placement. That remark might have been tongue-in-cheek, though. Good morning, ladies. Good morning. Nicole Dreisky is greeting a group of 15 women, give or take a few, because someone usually has to miss class to meet with a lawyer, head to a court date, stuff like that. And to start, I would love to have us do the, the group agreement. I'm going to start it and I'm going to... And the rest of the women take it from there. Dreisky's director of the International Children's Media Center, based here in Chicago. They have a number of projects in this film curation program. Women's View is one of them. It gets women talking about their feelings and seeing how women all over the world, though different, are still dealing with a lot of the same issues. And a big takeaway for women in the program, their voices matter. Is anybody new? For the past few years, Dreisky's been taking the program to non-traditional settings. And this is how we conduct our sessions in order to make sure that we have a group that's worthwhile for everyone. The women here will serve as jurors for an upcoming film festival, and this group agreement, which they helped write, is part of that. We'll maintain confidentiality. What's said in the group stays in the group. All these women are still waiting for their trials to start. They've been charged with crimes ranging from possession of a stolen vehicle to murder. One diva, one mic, one person talks at a time. More than half these women have been in jail for over a year and seven months. One's been here four years and four months, and at least one landed in jail when she couldn't pay a $1,000 bond. There are no bad ideas, especially when we are getting creative. If we reach a point we can get past, we'll just say, M.O., enough, let's move on, keep it real. That last rule? There's a shorthand term for that. The women here call it ELMO, enough, 
Let's move on. Okay, so ladies, who can stand up and describe for me what we are doing? We are watching small snip, snippets of films. Um, they range anywhere from three minutes to maybe 30 minutes. And after we watch them, we, we have a balance sheet with various questions on them. Such as and those questions form the backbone of the film evaluations. The scores the women give will determine which films get considered for a final round of voting. That's when jurors really butt heads. At the end of the process, Dreisky says... You will have a film festival curated only by you. Let's, I cannot say that too many times. You are the only ones who have any influence over what gets into this festival. Let's get the lights. Thank you. Longest film we've showed so far. After a film's been screened, the lights come up and viewers who have been momentarily transported somewhere else blink as their eyes adjust to the harsh fluorescent light. How many of you knew anything about the political situation in Colombia? How did you know about it? Karina motions with her hand that she's got something to say. Because I read the book about Pablo Escobar and the um, the drug business, the Cali cartel, the guerrillas, armies that lived in the forest, how basically Colombia was a country that was basically running itself, was not run by a government. Women's View jurors are talking about displaced but not defeated, a documentary made by a 16-year-old girl whose family is part of the millions displaced by civil disorder in Colombia. Lithia picks up the conversation. That that movie brought back a lot of memories for me um, because... The uh, Robert Taylor Homes, I don't know if you are familiar with the low-income uh, project buildings that were, a lot of the residents were being displaced, and I was one of those residents, luckily not to be displaced, but I've watched a lot of my friends and their families be displaced, so that brought back a lot of memories that, you know, I, I thought that was buried down, but it not, it's not only going on in Columbia, it's going on here, right here in Illinois, it's going on in every, probably every state in the universe. I'm not trying to be racist, but had those four million displaced people living in that Lego land little village look like my friend here, um, Linda, correct, or or yourself, it wouldn't be going on. It would be fixed so quick. Kim, the woman who's talking now, is a little startled to discover from the film that so many people in Colombia are of African descent. This movie to me, shocks the conscience. I mean, I pride myself on knowing a little bit about a lot of things, and I knew about the war in Colombia, but as a black um, African-American, it kind of shocks me to know that other black people, because they are black, they look just like us, everyone in this room can tell you that that little dance party and the little kids when they was dancing at home, we have done that in our houses. I know we have. Because that could have been any household on the northwest, east, south side of Chicago. And to know that we have our people living in those type of conditions, like they say over in England, it's just right across the pond. We we should really be ashamed of ourselves that that we are not like, Something has to be done. To me, this film is a call to action. 
were dragging chairs across the floor of the rec room in Division 5. A month or so after jurors have made their final Film Fest decisions, I've come back for a debrief with some of the Women's View participants. We don't have much time, and as I'm leaning down to pick something up off the floor, that's when Amanda fixates on the iPhone and the dollar bill that's come spilling out of my pocket. It's 12.50, so we have... A dollar? I haven't a, seen one of those in About an, uh, a dollar. Wow. <laughs> it looks amazing. A dollar looks amazing. And so... iPhone and a dollar? All this attention to a dollar bill is a little disconcerting, at least to me. We move on to the Women's View program itself. I'm wondering out loud if women in this class ever carry discussion of film back to the tier. Definitely yes. And they tell me, just as an example, about a short film from Norway called Aquarium. The protagonist, who's deaf, lives in her own secluded world and doesn't read social signals the way other people might. And so are you saying that, like, in code, when things happen up on the tier, you might say, well, she's kind of like in an aquarium mode? As an aquarium mind. Kim's one of our favorite aquarium minds when she's yelling at CNN News on the television. (laughs) Does Kim yell at CNN News? She is so smart, and the things that she says to the TV, if she was on a debate team, we might get somewhere in the world. No, I'm serious, because Kim Kim, Kim is one of the most intellectual beings I've ever met in my life, and I met her incarcerated. Kim tells me she signed up for Women's View because... I grew up watching Siskel and Ebert. Soon as Kim heard about Women's View, she got really excited that she was going to get to critique movies, just like those guys she enjoyed so much as a kid. I'm in jail, but I'm going to get a ballot. I'm going to get the vote. And this is the big day. The dozens of films the jurors watched have been winnowed down to eight. The last has just finished playing here in the jail's chapel to an audience of about 60 female detainees. Nicole Dreisky steps to the mic. Vote. Don't let anybody influence your vote. Just grab a pen and circle your favorite film or write. Dreisky asks if the jurors have anything to say. Lots of them do, including Kim, the Siskel and Ebert fan, who says she never expected this day to come. To think that we would get a chance to see first-time, never-before-seen videos, uh, clips of movies, and our opinion counted. You mean us? We're in blue. Society has written us off, but you all value our opinion. So for one, that gave us a little bit of, hmm, we might be somebody. And with that, a murmur of agreement goes up in the room. For WBEZ, this is Linda Paul. The 2019 Women's View Film Festival, curated by inmates at Cook County Jail, begins with a reception tomorrow at 6 p.m. at the International Children's Media Center. The address is 625 North Kingsbury Street, and the movies begin at 7 p.m. Coming up after the break, we're going to hear about a film that takes us back to the Napoleonic times in Britain. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. 
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Film contributor and director at Facet Chicago, Milos Stalik interviews the world's great filmmakers on Worldview. Today, Milos chats with award-winning British filmmaker and playwright Mike Lee. Well known for his Gilbert and Sullivan biopic Topsy Turvy and the working class dramas All or Nothing and Secrets and Lies, Lee's new historical drama is called Peterloo. The film details a British little-known class uprising in early 19th century. Peterloo's now showing at AMC Dine-In Yorktown 18 and AMC Dine-In Northbrook Court 14. Good people get here Since times are so hard My song to the poor It doth pay some regard For trade being dead I'm weaving out of force. I hope in a few months it will make men's for all. We are on the brink of liberty. We demand that our sufferings cease. Now is the time for action. Now! The corrupt order! Will come crashing down! So, Mike, after Turner, which was in 2014, this film about a personality larger than life about the British painter, it was kind of surprising to see you with your next project, Stay in the 19th Century, with Peterloo. What fascinates you about this period of the 19th century? I mean, I think everything's interesting and all periods are interesting. I mean, although it's true that I've made three 19th century films, obviously topsy-turvy having been the first one, which I'm sure you've seen. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in the 19th century, but each of those three films had a completely different remit and each has its own separate source of interest and message. I mean, obviously, topsy-turvy and Mr. Turner are both, in a way, ways of turning the camera around on ourselves as artists. Peterloo is a whole different ball game, obviously. So what I'm saying to you is I wouldn't put too much stress on the um, fact that they are all 19th century films. I think it's inching towards being a coincidence, really. Well, what's interesting about Peterloo is that the year is 1819, so this is not far behind the American Revolution and the French Revolution, and so it seems like a very rapid social change when you come to Waterloo, you come to something that, as the film begins, with the end of the Napoleonic Wars, which we don't talk about very much, is the after-effects of wars. There's unemployment there are class divisions, and there are really the germinations or germs of a class struggle. Absolutely. And you mentioned the American Revolution, and particularly the French Revolution. Now, the French Revolution was very important in the context of Peterloo. So is the um, American Revolution, but the French Revolution is mentioned several times in the movie because the French Revolution absolutely inspired the radicals and terrified the ruling class, both the government and the um, monarchy, because they feared an English Revolution, obviously. So that's important. And we should say that what the situation is, is that when Joseph, who is a bugler, 
in the Napoleonic Wars, comes back from Belgium, walks back, and comes to his family in Manchester, textile town, and situation has gone from bad to worse because the weavers, the people in the textile industry, there's great unemployment, their wages have been cut, so there's a great deal of oppression. At the same time, it's interesting to see how journalism, for example, plays a role in it. You have so many journalists who are connected to this working class, which is getting a class consciousness in a way. That's correct. Um, I mean, obviously, one of the things that the film looks at and is about is not just in the context of the journalist, but it's the whole matter of the communication of ideas. And what's important is that this, of course, was before state education. I mean, you have in the film, particularly, for example, those three young radicals who are finally locked up. Those are guys that would have received no formal education. They'd have learnt to read through the Sunday schools or they'd have been self-taught. They are literate, articulate, and they quote the classics. And they're in the business of disseminating ideas. The one thing you haven't mentioned, of course, which is important, which is the main motivating factor in the uh, democracy demonstration that we call Peterloo, is, of course, that only 2% of the population had the vote. Right. It's a question of representation, which is a very big topic today. And this is, for me, one of the many ways in which the film is very oddly contemporary, as, yes, yes. as meticulously yes. as it's said in its time. I think that's right. And um, you may find it interesting to know that we decided to make the film at the beginning of 2014, when we finished Mr. Turner. Almost as soon as we started to prepare it and research it, we found ourselves almost on a daily basis saying, you know what, this is increasingly relevant. What we couldn't have anticipated is that in the half decade since then, things have gone through leaps and bounds and become infinitely worse in many places in the world in this very specific context of democracy and representation. And the other thing that's very interesting about the film is the peaceful motive. First of all, the number of people who gather together in Peterloo, which of course becomes the massacre, which is very difficult to even comprehend. 60 to 80,000 people is a lot of people. Yeah. You know what? Some calculations run as many as 100,000. Wow. And then the fact that they are very well organized towards a peaceful demonstration. So violence is never an intent. Absolutely. That's exactly what happened. So when did you know about Peterloo? In school? Because we know nothing about it in America. No, no. And many people don't hear either. Paradoxically, I actually grew up in the Manchester, very close to where it happened. But I really didn't know about it much. It was mentioned in school so briefly that you wouldn't have even spotted that it happened in the area. And when we were working on the film, many people from the area, all of different ages, we all said, no, we really didn't know about it. So it was a very big thing at the time. And it resonated throughout the 19th century. But it's kind of got lost Although there is now a massive revival on the go for the bicentenary, and people are really becoming aware of it. And of course, we've helped that, I think, by making the movie. Also interesting is to try to make a connection between Peterloo and your early films, because people will look at it and say, well, Mike Lee has gone in a kind of a sideways direction because many of your early films were family dramas based on the individual. And here, the scope and the canvas is much, much larger. But I really see 
this not really very much different because, in a way, all of your characters in your earlier films were always capable of ambiguity, capable of shifting. And this is the same thing that's happening here, is that you have many characters come and reappear and at the same time remain as individuals driving the film. I think you're absolutely right, and I appreciate how accurate you are in your analysis. I, I think one of the most naive things that has been said, and plainly you are rejecting it, is that it's, this film is completely different because it's epic. The scale may be different, but my job, my objective always, is to put on the screen three-dimensional real people looked at individually. This is what you've just said, and you're absolutely right. And so, to me, it's merely a question of scale and quantity. But even in the film on the massacre itself, you're still looking at individuals, things happening to people individually with, as you put it, and you're right, with all the um, contradictions and complexities that we as real people have. So I think you're absolutely right. And also, the other thing is that people have said, oh, well, you know, you've never made a film with all that, such a lot of speeches before. Not true. Think about Naked. Sure. You know, the guy never shuts up. <laughs> you know, uh, you know uh, and, and, and speech and language has been central along with everything else, to what I've been investigating, you know, look at Topsy-Turvy, look at a whole bunch of my films, you know, how people talk, how people express ideas, the quality and nature of language, the accuracy of language, you know, and I make films about what people do. You know, I like to put people doing the work they do and how people communicate, how people talk, how people express ideas comes under the general heading of what people do as well. You know. You're know, you listening to Worldview. I'm Eloy Stalik speaking with filmmaker Mike Lee, whose new film is called Peterloo. When Peterloo was over, the massacre, beautifully shot by you, incidentally, I mean, in this, you know, kind of vast, almost war and peace I should say, but very situated on the ground. That was kind of interesting is that you didn't use so many overhead shots. It was mostly from the visceral point of view of the individual who was participating. What was the effect of Peterloo? What effect did it have? You mean historically? Historically, yes. Oh, historically, well, it took until 1832 before any act of parliament that gave any more people the vote. And that was only very limited. It wasn't until the 1867 and 1883 uh, that more people got the vote. It wasn't until 1918 that women got the vote. And that was only some women and all women didn't get the vote until 1923. So it was a slow process. In the immediate aftermath of Peterloo, it's generally agreed by historians that the Tory government at the time of Peterloo was the most repressive government ever in Britain. And as a reaction to Peterloo, they introduced six acts of parliament, which, you know, limited speech, freedom of movement, uh, curtailed the press, all of that stuff. Some of the protagonists involved went to prison and there was a big clampdown. But there was a public outcry because it was widely reported and um, it caused quite a fuss. One of the other surprising things about it is to see the strong role that women already had in Peterloo among the working class, because usually you tend to associate that with 100 years later. Well, that's right. And of course, there were, as you see in the film, there were female reformers. There was a tiny, tiny minority of female reformers who actually were advocating votes for women. But that was so minor that that's not in the film, because really, the main objective of the female reformers, who were very strong, as you say, was the idea of one man, one vote, meaning 
a vote per family. In other words, they supported the male franchise. But they were very strong women. And indeed, I've created a fictitious central family, a working class family, a mill working family, um, with a very, very strong mother figure in the, in the family, played by Maxine Peake. You grew up in the wake or post the British realist films, The Angry Young Men, the whole movement of the 1960s, which to me is an era of cinema, by the way, which I think is historically underrepresented and underappreciated, the whole, the whole 1960s in Britain. But at the same time, you experimented with theater, you were interested in art, so you were really drawing from other influences. Yes, I was. And of course, the interesting thing about what you just said is that, I mean, the British New Wave at the beginning of the 60s was exactly the time when I was, you know, fledgling would-be filmmaker and, and I was a student and doing all of that. For me, what's interesting is that I grew up in Manchester in the provinces. I never saw a movie that wasn't in English until I was 17 and I went to London to be a, a drama student. Um, in other words, growing up, I only ever saw Hollywood and British movies. When I got to London and started to see world cinema, you know, I saw everything, you name it. But one of the important things is you had the British new wave, so-called new wave films going on, Saturday night, Sunday morning, etc., etc. Mm. Carol Rice, Lindsay mm. Anderson. And at the same time, we had the Nouvelle Vague from France. Now, what was great about the British films is that they were attempting to show working-class life. But the thing about the British New Wave cinema, so-called, is that every single one of those films, without exception, in the early 60s, was based on a play or a novel. Oh, interesting. There, there was no original cinema. And what inspired me about the Nouvelle Vague, and of course the rest of world cinema, was it was pure cinema. It was cinema that was created as per cinema. And although it's true that one of the greatest Nouvelle Vague films was Jules Jim, which, of course, is based on a novel, apart from that, the rest of all that work is real organic, what I call organic original cinema. And that's what I was really most inspired by as a filmmaker who is committed to creating material in its own terms, not adapting other material. But in, in a way, your career, if, if I think about it, sometimes seems reminiscent to me of somebody like Peter Brook in theater because it was always an investigation or an exploration. And you can correct me because I may be talking out of the side of my mouth, but this is how you gathered a group of collaborators that you always worked with. So you really created an environment in which you really wanted to explore and kind of discover things rather than just make cinema from original script or yeah. adapted script either way? Well, to some degree, you're right, but I would have to say this. First of all, like everybody, I was inspired by Peter Brook from a very mm. early age. Mm. Peter Brook is one of the great gurus and teachers of our age, but I would suggest that the major, major difference between me and Peter Brook, Peter Brook is uh, a researcher. For Peter Brook, theatre is the laboratory right. in which to explore ways of doing things. Now, I have done all of that as well and, and have developed all that stuff, but I am primarily a storyteller, and I'm a storyteller concerned with telling stories about the real world, the social world and things. And in a way, Peter Brook's not concerned with that. He's not a writer or an original storyteller. He's actually um, a very, very profound uh, investigator of the ways and means of doing things. Now, as I say, I do that, but I only do it in order to serve the cause 
of the actual stories. Same thing, really. Last question, and since you brought it up, and since it's a film which I think is everyone should see, and very few people today know it, Naked, which is crazy, mad, brilliant. It really stands on its own. I don't think it has you know, any antecedent or nothing that followed it. And it stands alone in your work. It doesn't stand alone in your work, but in a way, it's a singular pillar. How, what, why naked? What do you mean, why naked? Well, <laughs> okay, why naked? What's the question? <laughs> the question is, how did naked come about? How did you come with that? Because it's such an explosion in a way. Well, you know, here's the thing. You can't always explain in a logical and coherent way where stuff comes from. You know, you really can't with art. I mean, there are some explanations to some aspects of Naked. I mean, one of the preoccupations in Naked, which comes out through the central character, we made it in 1992, is the impending millennium, which happened eight years later. Now, you know, and the apocalypse that was anticipated, which we now know didn't actually happen until eight years later. Exactly. I also, in some ways, wanted to investigate some aspects of unacceptable male behavior. Uh uh You see, I think you've already kind of said earlier in the conversation, um, I don't really make films that are just about one thing, really. I mean, it's quite complex. I mean, I always regard naked and happy-go-lucky Mm-hmm. which you might on the face of it think are sure. entirely different films, sort of film. But they are actually reverse sides of a coin, really. That's, that's I mean, interesting. I mean, Johnny in Naked is an idealist. He was accused by people when the film came out of being a cynic, not a cynic at all. He's a frustrated, disappointed, disillusioned idealist, disappointed by the, the moral fiber he sees in, in the world. But the protagonist, the main character uh, of Happy Go Lucky is Poppy, who is a teacher who is also an idealist, but instead of being a negative idealist who's disappointed and who's turned in on herself like Johnny, she's open and positive and deals with things and knows how to deal with people and both have a sense of humour, but they deal with the world in different ways. So I think those two films are worth looking at against each other. And language and the importance of language, which is just such an astonishing element in the films. Yeah, well, that's right. And as I say, that is, again, what we're dealing with, amongst everything else, in Peter Liu. Right. The film is Peter Liu. The director is Mike Lee. I'm Milos Telik for Worldview. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you very much, Milos. Milos Stalik is Worldview's film contributor. Peter Liu is now showing at the AMC Dine-In Yorktown 18 and the AMC Dine-In Northbrook Court 14. Coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Stay with us. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global citizen friend Nari Safavi is here with recommendations on your global weekend. Great to see you, Nari. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. Well, we're going to get musical here in the top half of a Absolutely. Weekend Passport. Uh, we're going to Canada, we're going to Japanese-American experiences, and we're going to go to Palestine, we're going to go to France. But first and foremost, we have a musician called Sen Morimoto, who is Japanese-American and is performing on Tuesday at the Lincoln Hall. We're going to hear some of Sen's music right off the bat here, and he's got an interesting blend of hip-hop. He plays saxophone, and it's jazzy. Here is his song, People Watching. Sen Morimoto and his song People Watching. He's going to be at Lincoln Hall on Tuesday. He'll be performing with Sasami, a Japanese-American singer-songwriter, music musician, and he is uh, Kyoto-born, Massachusetts-raised, and has been here for the last uh, five years or so in Chicago. Exactly. He's uh, He hails from a small town in Massachusetts, but he's very interesting for his generation because he's not simply using his lyric in simply in, this, uh, in a very uh, cliché hip-hop fashion. He also uses elements from jazz, and I guess he hung out in New Orleans for a while and hung out with the Neville Brothers, and that's where he picked up the saxophone. So makes it a very interesting background for him. And he says that his father uh, is Japanese from Japan, and his mother is a white American woman who was who lived in Japan. And they both met in uh, in some sort of a Japanese record store in San Francisco, and that's the uh, origins of his family. Yeah, I was reading in the article in the Reader about him that he took uh, saxophone lessons with one of the Neville Brothers in a yurt 
So that is, that's got to be a formative experience for anyone. Absolutely, yeah. So he has very eclectic influences, and he's a very much a free soul. I came across, comes across as a free soul, and a person who is doing a lot of uh, unorthodox things and a lot of experimentation at this early stage in his life. So he will be an artist to kind of watch. I was interested in the tension between his collaborative efforts, and he seems to enjoy collaborating with different musicians around town and everything, and he puts together his albums almost all by himself as a multi-instrumentalist. He's putting together his own videos by himself, and if you get a chance to look at Sen Morimoto's videos, they're really good and really kind of eclectic and interesting. Yeah, and he also talks about being a poor musician for a while and then all of a sudden getting a deal to actually not only just getting paid for his gigs, but being a part of a record label. So he's now a partner in the record label that's putting out his products. So Sen's new album is Cannonball! Exclamation Point from Super Records, which he is now involved with. The next song we're going to play is How It Is from Sen Morimoto. Sen Muramoto and his song, How It Is. Check out the video on YouTube. It's pretty good. And we're talking with Nari Safavi on Weekend Passport, our weekend let you know how to have a good time internationally segment. And Nari, we're going from a young buck out there with his uh, big new album to a veteran, a super veteran. A super veteran and a legend, really. Jane Seabury is one of the greatest singer and songwriters uh, hailing from Canada. And she is a person who has been around for a couple of decades. She is very, very soulful. And she has done some really interesting collaborative projects. We're going to play one of my favorite songs of hers, where she collaborated with Katie Lang. And this being the Holy Week, I think it's very, very appropriate to play this at this moment. Oh, a man is placed upon the steps and a baby cries. High above you can hear the church bell start to ring. And as the heaviness, all the heaviness, the body settles in. Somewhere you can hear a mother sing. Then 
it's how long and how far and how many times Oh, before it's too late Call all angels Call all angels Walk me through this one Don't leave That's Jane Seabury and Calling All Angels, a collaboration she did with Katie Lang. Jane is going to be at the Old Town School of Folk Music tonight at 8 p.m. Yes, and it will be a treat. She can be very soulful. She can be very political. She can be very sassy. So there will be, she's a very versatile artist and it all comes across very naturally. It will be a privilege to see it. And I hear that the concert is almost nearly sold out already from the Old Town School of Oakland, but there may still be some tickets and some no-shows. So if you can, go over there and try your luck. (laughs) Jane Seabury at the Old Town School of Folk Music, tonight at 8 p.m. Let's swing over and get filmy with the Palestine Film Festival. Absolutely. This is one of my favorite events of the year, Palestine Film Festival. It's an annual ritual now at the Gene Sisko Film Center, one of the few institutions that really is dedicated to presenting both both cinemas of Israel and Palestine, and they're increasingly doing a great job of bringing films from both of those countries that are not necessarily defined by the conflict, where people and artists who are doing things about normal lives are there. And their opening night film looks like a very interesting film called Screwdriver by Bassam Jarbawi. It's sort of a family kind of a situation, and it has some comical moments, and it's a real look at a slice of life of Palestinian people living in Palestine, and it's worth seeing. All right. It sounds interesting. It doesn't sound just like Slice of Life. I mean, it's the joy of a family celebration soon gives way to confusion from a man suffering from PTSD from years of solitary confinement. Uh, it's, a, it's not your typical family drama. <laughs> well, it's maybe typical in Palestine or in Israel to have these kinds of issues. So it's very humanizing, let's put it that way, as opposed to just simply political sloganeering about politics, which is what your typical expectations are about films coming from these two countries and it's just good to see the human element of all of this and it's happening tomorrow night saturday april 20th 8 p.m at the gene Sisko film center and there is usually a reception and the artists come along and it's a very vibrant atmosphere to go and hang out and experience things that you don't normally experience Sounds great. The Palestine Film Festival. One more film mention. There's an interesting screening on Wednesday on the 24th at 8 p.m. at Comfort Film on North Milwaukee Avenue, 2579 North Milwaukee, and it's Anya's Varda's Daguerreotypes. And this is a little film that she made in 1976. It sounds really interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, you know, Agnes Varda, a uh, French filmmaker of, I believe, Polish descent, has also done some very experiments. And there's a lot more tributes coming out about her because she recently passed away. And this is uh, something that I have not seen before, but I'm eager to find out what it's like. I've heard a lot about the daguerreotypes. It's a wonderfully intimate portrait of small shops and shopkeepers on a stretch of street where she lived for more than 50 years. She likes to get inside exactly. things. Exactly. And that's a great gift. Yes, definitely. And those kinds of films were very much in vogue in the 70s to make. 
Well, there we go, Nari. We've sent people to a couple music events. We've sent people to a couple of film events. I think that's the best we can do. I think this is going to be a great weekend, and we're calling all angels to be grateful and generous in this uh, weekend of spiritual contemplation. Nari Safavi, our guide on Weekend Passport every week. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you for having me. You should sign up for the Worldview Podcast. All the joy of listening to Worldview, but you don't have to show up every day at noon. So look for the Worldview Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or sign up at wbez.org slash worldview. Monday is April 22nd, and that is Earth Day. This program celebrates with its annual Earth Day quiz on Monday. We'll quiz you on your knowledge of the recent Trump administration moves on the environment have some questions on the Great Lakes, and some questions on climate change and civil disobedience. Submit your questions and suggestions about Earth Day at wbez.org slash worldview. Join us Monday for the Earth Day Quiz. Win valuable prizes. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine and Jenny Friedland for production assistance. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. WBEZ.